they said bye bye to them what they'd birthed. And from out of the nothing, they looked back and Captain Walker hollered, Wait! One of us will come! Wait! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we've reached the slideshow portion of this presentation in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 57, which begins with Slake placing a slide into the discount Viewmaster, and it ends with Savannah quieting the children. Rounding out the week with us is Shem Herman from the YouTube channel Mad Max Bible. Hey, Shem. Hi, everyone. Hey, welcome back. I mentioned on Wednesday how slideshows are just oh so exciting and just the highlight of any <laughs> hangout when your friend comes back from vacation. This is a bit more important, though. To these people, these are the sacred texts of the world that was. Yeah, and to Max, how long has it been since he has seen a picture or watched a movie or watched TV or anything like that? This must be a pretty unique experience for Max as well. <laughs> well, I think for Max, I mean, with pictures, at least, you know, there's a theme with him and, and the picture of his family, you know, in the video game. And, and, and uh, he used to have this little picture of his family in the steering wheel of his car. So maybe he keeps that. I don't know. Or maybe not because the Interceptor blew up and video game is not canon. <laughs> oh, oh, that video game. I don't want to get back into it because I think we've talked about it before. But oh, when I started up that video game and it started with that opening flashback, I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's not Jesse. That's not Sprague. George, where are you? What's going on? <laughs> Help, George. I need an adult. You were supposed to be here. You left us like those kids. Oh, boy. That's another video that you did. Yeah. Talking about the Mad Max video games. That was another good one. Yeah. People should jump on YouTube. Go watch that one, too. Actually, just watch all of them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Easily do it in an oh, afternoon. Oh, that's sweet, sweet YouTube ad revenue. <laughs> <laughs> so watch the video and then set it somehow to just auto replay and just leave it playing. Yeah, and turn ad blog <laughs> off, too. Please. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So this first image that we see, Slake drops it in here and he says, remember this? And all of the kids, they cry out exactly what's in the picture because they've probably memorized the order of these pictures. Yes, they're still, this is all very ritualistic. Everything happens in a certain order. They say certain things. The children respond in certain ways. This has all happened the exact same way countless times before. Mm -hmm. The thing that I find ironic about this whole thing is that when he says, remember this, first of all, they don't remember any of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and second of all, when they actually describe what it is, they get it all wrong. So <laughs> apparently that's how they operate. So this first picture, which they call Tomorrow Morrowland, is just a photograph of Sydney's central business district. And the giant tower in the picture is just called Sydney Tower. It's Sydney's tallest structure and the second tallest observation tower in the Southern Hemisphere. The name Sydney Tower has become common in daily usage. However, the tower has also been known as the Sydney Tower Eye, AMP Tower, Westfield Centerpoint Tower, Centerpoint Tower, or just Centerpoint, because why not? The Sydney Tower is a member of the World Federation of Great Towers, which I am assuming is a very exclusive club with a very specific height requirement. Anyway. Okay, hold on. <laughs> 
So there's this tower club. Yes. With ostensibly a height requirement. Well, as towers that are built get higher and higher and higher, do they have to raise that limit so that it's still like an exclusive tower club? And then do people get kicked out for no longer being tall enough? (laughs) That is a very interesting question. You can go to www.great-towers.com and find out for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I will. Yeah. The World Federation of Great Towers, or WFGT, as they prefer to shrink it down, is an international association of great monuments that includes some of the most famous buildings in the world. Yeah, I'll drop the G out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Sydney Tower stands 309 meters, or just over 1,000 feet, above Sydney Central Business District, located on Market Street between Pitt and Castlereagh Streets. It is accessible from the Pitt Street Mall, Market Street, or Castlereagh Street, and sits above the Westfield Sydney, formerly Centerpoint Shopping Center. It's open to the public. You can go check it out. Right, right up to the top. Oh, you don't have to like pay to go up to the. Oh, top? you probably have to pay to go to the top. You have to pay to go to the top of most things. Okay. That have observation decks, but it's still there, and that's the important thing. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> you can be part of Mad Max Beyond Thunder too. It's like part of the location hunt. In a way. Yeah, you could go up to the top of the Sydney Tower and be like, hey, remember this? This thing we're on? And people are going to be like, are you making a reference? (laughs) This is so obscure. Like, why am I even here? (laughs) The the funny thing is, I actually know people that would go there. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Not not to say anything bad about them. That's why I love them. One thing's for sure, the Sydney Central Business District looks nothing like the Tomorrowland that you find in, let's see, I think it's in Belgium. (laughs) Oh, Oh, there's a Tomorrowland in Belgium? Isn't that like a rave party or something? I think so. I'm just looking at it. There's a festival, Dreamville Global Journey. I'm I'm looking at it right now and it's it's colorful. I'll say that much. Yeah. It's pretty much a whole bunch of clueless kids painted <laughs> dancing, I guess. All right. But Isn't there sure. a, like a Tomorrowland or World of Tomorrow in Disney World? Isn't it a ride in Disney World? Well, back in 2015, Disney did make a film called Tomorrowland. I'm not sure how well it did, though. It had a $180 million budget and it only made back $209 million. So it was technically successful but not wildly successful. Okay. In Disney World, there is a park called Tomorrowland, and that's where you find Space Mountain. Okay. Now, is Space Mountain the one that they remade to be Marvel-themed? I think it's Guardians of the Galaxy-themed. Or did they make it a Star Wars ride? I have no idea. We're not Disney people. We that's don't know true. these things. <laughs> this isn't the Disney Animated Minute Essentials. There are people who would know that answer off the top of their head. <laughs> I am not one of those people. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm just excited to get to the next slide. Mm. Well, before we get to the next slide, we get that extreme close-up of Max's eye, which is an incredibly interesting shot. Yes, it is. Anytime that they get to do a close-up of Mel Gibson's eyes, yeah, I appreciate it. This certainly isn't a glamour shot, though. They do plenty of those throughout Mel Gibson's stint as Max. They do plenty Mm. of glamour shots. This isn't one of them, but it's still a pretty cool shot. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Plus, it's uh, his only working eye. Right. (laughs) 
Oh, so Max doesn't really get the 3D effect. Nope. Of the stereo scope. Nope. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. So Slake rips away the first slide. No more tomorrow, Tomorrowland, because he's going to throw another one in. And he says, remember this? And all the children shout, the river of light. So the bridge that is featured in this slide and the next slide mm-hmm. is the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Yep. This picture was specifically taken from the north side of the bridge facing south. Yep. Not only can you climb to the top of the Sydney Tower, you can also climb to the top of the Sydney Bridge. Also for a price. <laughs> <laughs> and you get all harnessed up and you take a hike up there to the top. When I was doing my research, I assumed that this was a common activity that you could do with iconic bridges around the world, that they would have tours that would take you to the top. Not so much. Most bridges have pedestrian paths that you can go across them on, like like the Golden Gate Bridge. But it's pretty rare that you can actually climb to the top. Hmm. And of course, it has beautiful views of the entire city, the harbor, the opera house. Cool. Do you guys think that those pictures so far... Do you think they come from like a set of pictures that you actually get with that with that thing, or um, you know, like a set of Sydney pictures set that they actually had on the plane somehow? Based on the next picture we see, the one of the as they say, it's sky raft. I'm willing to bet that all of these things were probably promotional toys made by the airline. You get on the plane, your kid's a little rowdy. The stewardess says, oh, would your child like to play with this Qantas brand Viewmaster and look at all of these fun slides? And the parents would be like, oh, yes, please. This child is loud and obnoxious because we're on a plane. So let's have them do that. (laughs) (laughs) For a price. Although when you talk about it, I'm just actually thinking about some slides that show up later on, and I don't think they will be child-friendly. Yeah, I don't think this entire set is from a promotional airline set. I think one of them came from somewhere else. (laughs) Well, you know, it was a different time. Maybe they didn't have little televisions in the back of every airline seat, so maybe they had a selection of slides to choose from. Well, I was not a airline steward back in the 1980s. <laughs> I don't know these specific things, but I like this next picture that we see after the River of Light. Slake says, remember this? And everybody yells, Sky Raft. But as much as I like this picture, there's something wrong about it. What is it? The picture is backwards Hmm. because of three things. One, the airplane is flying in front of the bridge. The words on the side of the airplane that say Qantas are backwards. Yeah. So instead of Q-A-N-T-A-S in that order, it's S-A-T-N-A-Q and all the letters are flipped backwards. Oh, okay. Also, if you look past the bridge, you can see two landmarks. You can see the Sydney Opera House and you can see Kirribilli Point. In the picture, the Sydney Opera House is over to the left and Kirribilli Point is off to the right. Except that when you're actually looking at Sydney Harbor in this direction, which is more or less southeast over the Sydney Harbor Bridge, Kirribilli Point should be off to the left and the Sydney Opera House should be off to the right. So Slake probably inadvertently put in the slide backwards Well, so much for their ritual. Now they have displeased their God and will experience his wrath. (laughs) They have been slack. Oh, yeah. They have been slack. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Imagine what other things they got wrong. And this is why Max rejects them. Oh, no. (laughs) This is exactly why he says, I am not Captain Walker. 
Yes. <laughs> you have been slack. Well, go out in the desert, get swallowed by sand. <laughs> oh, that would have been such the kicker. Like, if they did everything perfectly, and then a giant light envelops Max, and he transforms magically, reveals himself to be Captain Walker, and then we'd be sitting there in the movie theater being like, what is happening? <laughs> what is happening? Even more so than people sitting in the movie theater asking, what is happening? <laughs> you know what? I think it would be even funnier if the next slide would be like a picture from, from like a cartoon, like Goofy or something. And it would be like, you know, I don't know, <laughs> the magical talking dog. <laughs> and they go into the I mean, next we already one. already had like, Bugs oh. Bunny, so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> screwed everything up. And Max is still watching like, yeah, I think I'm going to need to help them. Yeah. <laughs> They need an adult. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this next slide, Slyke pulls out the backwards picture of Sydney. He puts another one and he says, remember this. And then everybody yells out, Captain Walker. Now they have this photograph that they think is Captain Walker, which I think is just a promotional image taken by the airline mm -hmm. and slipped into this collection of slides. But... Looking at this character, looking at this image of this individual in this picture, do you feel like it looks like Max at all? Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little bit? Like the, the, the way the, the face is structured? Yeah, the face is kind of like Max, but ears aren't. Yeah, yeah, I see it. <laughs> you can almost understand why they have mistaken him for this person. Yeah, what if they found somebody who's, I don't know, I don't know, like a... I don't know, square-jawed, weird-looking dude. Do you think they would be, like, you know, just saying things like, okay, well, you're kind of like, maybe you are Captain Walker. Maybe we should test him. I don't know. I'm kinda... I think it would have been hilarious if in this little slide that they have that the pilot is not only standing in front of a plane that's taking off, but the pilot is holding a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Dead giveaway. <laughs> That's like that's him. <laughs> before the apocalypse, back when the company's making these photographs, they're like, hey, you know what? We got to take all these promotional photographs. They're kind of boring. Just you with the plane behind it. You know what? Uh, we got a monkey and the airline pilot taking the picture is going to be like, what? You want to put me with a monkey? That makes no sense whatsoever. And the photographer is like, yeah, well, you know, I'm bored. Hold the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, 15 years later. <laughs> <laughs> very far-reaching, very bizarre effects. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous, the next slide that we get, the waiting ones shout that this is Mrs. Walker, but the book describes her very differently. Yes. It describes her as a nightclub stripper. Like specifically a stripper, huh? Yes. Specifically... They call her a stripper. Because with that headdress and that ensemble that she's wearing, I was more thinking along the lines of like a Vegas dancer. Someone who's part of a large ensemble out on stage with the plumage and the choreography and whatnot. Yeah, that was definitely the sense that I got. More of a showgirl than a stripper. Yeah, and even if she was a showgirl like you would find in the movie Showgirls, which is not a good movie. <laughs> so bad. So bad. But even then, it's more of a cabaret style. Uh, what's the not boudoir burlesque? Yes, yep. it's more like a burlesque performer where it's a bit more coy and a bit less vulgar in its level of explicitness. Hmm. Yes. To me, she looks like Salma Hayek in 
from dusk till dawn. It's a good point. Very similar costume. Minus whatever she has on her head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that she's not holding a giant snake. Right. Although she's holding something in her right hand, but I cannot tell what it is. Yeah, it's hard to make out. Julie, you... And I were talking about this picture before the podcast started, and you found it unfortunate that despite the fact that they have this example of a male adult in Captain Walker, all they have to show off on a female adult is this individual in this uh, photograph. Yes. And I know that I have mentioned it countless times before, Miller's treatment of women in his movies, the three so far, has not been stellar. And this certainly isn't outright poor treatment of women, but the men get an example of what a man was before the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. He was this person of authority who wore a uniform, who they look up to and deify, and then they have this portrait of a woman. They don't know that this image represents somebody who may have taken off their clothes for money only to please men. They don't know that. What they see is someone who just isn't wearing very much clothing mm -hmm. and doesn't exude authority, who they know nothing about this woman. It just isn't equal to the example that they get for a man. You know, one interesting thing that you could take away from this photograph of who they say is Mrs. Walker, most of the clothing or skins that the waiting ones are wearing you could argue that they look more similar to Mrs. Walker than Captain Walker because a lot of them are running around in the scraps and loincloths and draperies and whatnot as opposed to things that are purposely tried to fashion after normal clothing. You're right. And that kind of surprises me a little bit because of how they treat Walker and how they think of him that they haven't tried to emulate his clothing. Mm. I don't think they've emulated either examples clothing i think they've oh yeah severe lack of rhinestones if they were trying to imitate right Mrs. Walker. right there's no pink satin to speak of <laughs> <laughs> she's doing a very poor job they seem to really be going their own way on how they style themselves yeah but then again if you think about it you know uh captain walker has his like you know um trademark hat so they have that for him, not for themselves, though. Yeah, almost like a crown set aside for unawaited figure. It's kind of like a Lord of the Rings thing where the people of Gondor, they have a steward who watches over Minas Tirith, but the crown and the throne is reserved for the king that will return. Yep, exactly. And Walker for the waiting ones is that, you know, return of the king thing. Mm -hmm. So Max is kind of like Aragorn, except if Aragorn wasn't actually the lineage that he had. You know what? I've talked enough about Lord of the Rings in the past. I don't need to try and <laughs> loop that back in here. Especially because I haven't watched those movies. I kind of know what you're talking about, but not really. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. I'm in, I've seen them once. I'm in the same boat. All right. kind of know what you're talking about. Even trees walk in those movies. Right. In those movies, they have regular ants as opposed to the turbulence that we see in this movie. Right. Well, no, not that we see, but that we hear about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So with the presentation of this last slide, they have gone through all of the pictures that are important to their history. And Max lowers the stereoscope toy from his face and everyone in the tribe is not, not it's not chanting. They're kind of rhythmically making this uh, sound. You know, they've got this like tempo going because they've reached the part of the story where Captain Walker gathers up 
a bunch of volunteers, people that are of a good age for a long haul, a total of 20 people, and they get together and pull the great leaving. You said the word volunteer. I did not get the sense that they were volunteers. Because Savannah does say they were picked. Yes. And that makes me wonder if there were any adults that were content in the crack in the earth. Yeah, I'm thinking about the same thing. If maybe the entire thing was sort of like a tyranny of one man, you know, kind of um, having the whole tribe bow down before him. I don't know. I mean, this kind of seems weird to me, you know. The idea of Walker being the one who was discontent and Walker being the one who wanted to go out and find civilization. Mm. And he had such a hold over the community as a whole that he rounded up 19 other people and this is what happened. Kind of whether they wanted to or not. It's kind of like a Papagallo situation. Mm. One charismatic leader who has a semblance of authority from before the world collapsed and people follow him based on that authority that existed before everything devolved into the situation that they found themselves in yeah or maybe just i don't know maybe we're just getting hung up on the word pick too much maybe there was a lot of people that actually wanted to go but he couldn't take them all right that's true it's not reasonable to take everybody right you only need i mean 20 actually seems like a lot of people to take you have to you take 20 people you also have to take 20 people worth of supplies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that supplies you're taking away from the people that are staying behind and also a lot of supplies that you have to like carry on your person mm-hmm. as savannah talks about this great leaving the waiting ones start to recite what is written on the wall not in its entirety but like the important bits and they do it in such a way that kind of reminds me of like a catholic mass This sort of melodic speak where they talk about rescue party departed at first light led by flight captain G.L. Walker. May God have mercy on our souls. This is the one bit of written history that they definitively have. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And in, I think it's actually written on the wall, but you can't really read it if it is there. The screenplay does give a specific date that they left. Yeah. Of 8-11-05. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I think they uh, changed it because they realized how many years have passed since Mad Max 2. Yeah. Because I know in the video that you made about the part one timeline for the Mad Max movies, you noted that in the wall, it's carved in uh, September 10, and then it looks like 1990 something or other. Like Ah. it doesn't specifically dictate a year. Yeah. Right. But it's not 05. Yeah. Mm -mm. Interesting. And the script, if you look back, I mean, I'm sure you have. Uh, there is a uh, mention of the Olympics. So if you kind of traced it back, I think it kind of lined up with this date. I'm not entirely sure because I haven't looked that uh, up properly, but the date you know, in the script is just completely wrong. I mean, the date actually is when Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome would have taken place. Mm. So they had to go back. It's like Back to the Future. Marty, we have to go back. so it's hard to see all of the names that are carved into this wall because some of them are filled in some of them are faded away some of them are just not at a good angle to see but i was able to pick out a few Uh, you've got robert Plummer, orson good harold nevis luger hibbern beatrice sanders michael gibson joseph brody catherine flett and gerard valenti Um, to name a few and then what's interesting about this section of the wall is that under the names, there are tally marks that have been painted onto the wall. Huh. 
And there are two main chunks that I see. There are white tally marks and there are red tally marks. The white tally marks are arranged in, I think, five rows with about 35 marks per row. And then the red hash marks are off to the side. They're a bit less consistent in their arrangement. But from what I was able to see, I could count about 75 tally marks in that section. So if those are tallying the days, you've got about 250 hash marks that we can see on screen in this shot. So you think... That tally mark started from the date that that group left? I think so. Or the date that they all arrived in the crack in the earth? I think when Captain Walker let out the great leaving of 20 and carved into the rock that they left, the next day they started keeping track of how long it had been since that group left. And I'm sure there are more tally marks further on down because it sounds like years since Captain Walker has left. And 250 hash marks is not even a year. Right. So they probably had one specific person who was in charge of tallying. And then when that person either got into a situation where they couldn't tally anymore or they took their own leaving, someone else stepped up chose a different color and started tallying their own record of days. Either that or they ran out of white paint. (laughs) Well, that's because screw loose is using it all up. Ah, yep. (laughs) That did actually, when you said that, made me wonder if screw loose was the one responsible for keeping the dates. Maybe. In the original script, there's actually way more walls than this one. Uh, this is the only one we actually get to see in the movie, but, you know, each leaving has its own wall that we never get to see. And the thing about this wall actually is that it's it's been like it's all artificial you know, like for the movie it was created artificially and it's like it's a huge wall it was like 15 by 40 foot surface just like using blocks of foam and you know with uh, steel and some scaffold just basically carved into looking like rock and uh i mean it was huge i mean we don't get to see that it's a shame that they made it out of just simple foam and didn't actually carve into the rock cuz that would have well it would have scarred the the preserve yeah. like it's it's a nature preserve. They wouldn't want to permanently alter the landscape. They would have had to tear down the dams that they built to make the pools of water. But it would have been really cool if for this portion they actually did get permission to carve into the rock. <laughs> you know. That would that would be really creepy for people, you know, hiking through the woods coming upon this wall. <laughs> I know. That's what would God be great have mercy about it. on your soul. <laughs> <laughs> I would turn back. I would turn around and walk back. <laughs> like, I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, I would see that and I would be like, oh, gee, I wonder if they ever found help, you know? <sighs> <laughs> or if this area is littered with dead bodies. Well, no, it's not littered with dead bodies. I'm pretty sure Screw Loose is the guy in charge of picking up all the bones because when we saw him in his little grotto, there's just bones everywhere. He's like the bone collector. Yeah, maybe he's the only one out of the whole tribe who actually understands what death is. Perhaps. Perhaps. Maybe that's why yeah. he is so reclusive because he understands the gravity of death. No, you know what? I would argue that seeing him, how, how he drives and all that. <laughs> <laughs> So the waiting ones, they've done this melodic recitation of what's written on the wall. And Savannah continues, they said bye bye to them that they'd birthed. And from the nothing they looked back and Captain Walker hollered, wait, one of us will come. And all the children repeat, wait, one of us will come. So the implication here is that the survivors had been in the crack in the earth long enough to start procreating, to start having children. There was another generation that had 
come about before they got nostalgic to the point that they decided to leave. Which would definitely explain how there are so many freaking children. I just, the thought of 52 children all in one place just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, plus there's some actual, you know, um, I, I don't know, I believe underage kids who are actually pregnant in this movie. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, just for a few seconds, you can see that, right? So, uh, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> According to the storybook that I was reading, when Max initially asks about parents and who birthed you and whatnot, Kusha, who is pregnant in this movie, already has a kid yeah. before the one that she's carrying. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's interesting how this tribe treats parentage, because there don't seem to be familial units. Everyone seems to be just part of the tribe, because Finn Maku is... Savannah's son. Kusha has one child already with another one on the way. And both of them, Kusha and Savannah, now this is, Kusha's not going to leave until a little bit later, a couple of, I think a week or two down the road, but they feel like they can just up and leave and they don't seem to think all that much of the children that they've birthed. Yeah. Probably because the people that went to go find help just left their kids behind. Yeah, it does seem to be much more of a communal raising of the children yeah. rather than a parent raising the child, yeah. Given the time frame of, you know, how long they've been there, which is about, I don't know, like 15 years or something like that, do you think it's even realistic for them to completely forget what the concept of family is and just doing all those things and, you know, and even the, the deterioration of the language itself? Like, do you think it really is that possible? It does seem to be awfully fast, Mm -hmm. But yes, I do think it's possible. The way I look at it, it sounds to me, based on what's said in the book and in the movie and whatnot, that the waiting ones structure their tribe based on task, not on this is a father, this is a mother, these are children. Joanna, who was mentioned in the book and in the storybook, was a firekeeper. That was her job. Yeah. Slake is lead tracker. That is his job. Savannah was out in the desert. I don't probably think we know what her job taken, was. I'm pretty sure she had taken a leaving. She had taken a leaving, yeah. But it's not about where you lie in a family structure. It's where you lie in the tribe structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The gatherers, the hunters, the... The fishers, the, fishers. the scouts... Yeah. All of them. Okay, so in that way, they are basically going backwards as opposed to, uh, you know, Barter Town, which is going forwards, but nowhere, you know, at the same time. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I think with all the adults and more specifically with all of their parents gone, they have to kind of reinvent society. Yeah. They're basically starting from scratch. So they're figuring it out how it works best for them. But I think they're going to hit a wall where, especially because their adults keep taking leavings... They're going to hit a wall where they just can't anymore. Mm -hmm. And even their language, I think, yes, their English is devolving, but it would evolve into a language of their own. Yeah. That they understand that outsiders can no longer understand. Hmm. We've already seen them starting to use variations of normal words. Like mm -hmm, instead of remember, so. they just say member. Instead of stopped, they say stoppered. Right. And they've also lost the ability to write. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Max would, would have been a, a good teacher for them? Um, huh. I don't know if Max has the patience to be a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just stops, starts slapping those kids around. Right. <laughs> Max yeah. is good with kids and he is able to relate to them. But like, That's like we saw with the feral child. That's in short controlled bursts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
With the feral child, yes, he gave the feral child a gift. He formed a connection with the child. But then when the feral child wanted to join Max and leave with him and be his companion, Max didn't even consider it for a moment. Absolutely not. Get out of my car. I'm going to be mean to you to mm -hmm. get you out of my car. Oh. He wanted no part of that. Here's where I'll disagree with you. Because <laughs> just today when I was reading a whole lot about this stuff... Um, I read an interview with Mel Gibson uh, back from, you know, 85 or something. And he referenced that scene exactly. And he thought that what he did then to the feral kid wasn't mean. Like he did it for his own good, for the feral kid's good. Like he understood that this kid has some future and he didn't want to endanger him, you know, when if he took him with him. Uh, but he had definitely a connection with the feral kid. So I don't think he was really mean to the kid just to be mean he did it for his own good kind of like <laughs> kind of like punching savannah in the face <laughs> yeah <laughs> right <laughs> yeah thinking yeah. back on it i think we might have brought this up but i kind of saw it as a harry and the henderson situation max knew that his road was going to be furious and whatnot and very dangerous and so you don't necessarily want to drag a kid along with that as much as the kid yeah. wants to go. Mm -hmm. So I saw it as more of a go, can't you see we don't want you anymore? But secretly Max is yeah. turning away and good. being like, ah, oh, so yeah. upset. Maybe it was the way the, the, the entire thing was framed, like, you know, with the music and, you know, the feral kid just, you know, looking all pouty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, the, the message wasn't conveyed properly. I think that's the thing with, with the kids in the crack in the earth. I mean, they have a rich history and there's a whole lot of things that we, you know, learn about those things, but not from the movie. Um, there's a lot of things missing from the movie that made me wonder about what the hell they were doing there alone and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think there's a little bit of a problem with Mad Max movies trying to convey those sort of things. I think those movies, they think they can do it properly, but when it comes out on the screen, it's kind of like, ah... Uh, Maybe I'd need a little bit of help with, I don't know, a script or something. Maybe a little bit of a book, something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Eventually you get to learn those things, you know? But that's, I think, the, the, the piece of those movies that it kind of um, is not... It could, I think it could, be, it could be improved. I think those movies assume too much in that sense. Yeah, I think the odd circumstances around the inception of Beyond Thunderdome and the trouble that they ran into around production with uh, the personal loss that George Miller suffered in losing Byron Kennedy, I think it just was a weird hodgepodge jumble that just made Thunderdome the odd beast that it is. <laughs> yeah. Coming off the heels of Road Warrior, Miller should have been able to come up with something that just added to the world that he had started creating and added so much depth and interestingness. And it, just the way that things went, it just didn't come right out as good as it could have been, I think. Yeah. And that's why I'm glad that we eventually did get Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? I think a lot of this uh, comes from the fact that, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to blame like a certain person, but... It's Terry Hayes. <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah, because um, he, like, his approach towards, I mean, okay, uh, here's the thing that, I, that I've that uh, i found out about, you know, Terry Hayes and George Miller's relationship, like, you know, how they work together and all that. Mm -hmm. George Miller is a visual guy, and Terry Hayes is the logic guy. And George Miller can come up with some crazy, crazy imagery, but he needs to ground it in reality. And this is why he hired Terry Hayes to do that work for him. That's why he wrote the backstories for everything. And I'm sure there's backstories for Beyond Thunderdome, the 15 years that we don't know about. 
And the thing about it is that Terry Hayes has some ideas of his own that sometimes are not uh, 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 jiving with me in a way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, he said things like the cars in Mad Max 2, like he hated them, you know. And that's why the cars in Beyond Thunderdome look the way they do. He really wanted to step away from that part. He was the one who actually coined this whole tribe thing, which is what makes me think that maybe he listened to Feral, you know, to Emil Minty when he was talking about the thing, maybe even, mm. you know, more more closely than by, uh, than George Miller. But he is the person who actually introduced all those things, and he steered this sort of movie into that weird direction, where it kind of still made sense as a Mad Max movie, but at the same time, it really sometimes it didn't. And so that's why it sort of bounced back. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, you know, I'm, I'm rambling, you know, but, but the, the way I see those movies is that when you get Fury Road is that it's always Miller who has the visuals, but then he needs to have a whole lot of people around him who help him lay down the groundwork. And sometimes when you get not the, you know, perfect people for the job, you get things like, you know, the tribe, which somehow sometimes doesn't make sense on the screen. Sometimes you get cars that are being hated by people and, you know, the entire movie that's just being sort of branded, you know, the black sheep of the series. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking that it was a little bit of him. Well, not not, even, not a little bit of a whole lot of things. <laughs> yeah. The story that we've heard was that Miller and Hayes sat down and Hayes said, hey, I've got this sort of Lord of the Flies-esque story spinning around in my head. And then Miller said, you know, I think we can spin that into a Mad Max movie. Yeah. And so you have the framing device of Barter Town with this sort of nugget in the middle of a half-formed idea that Miller said, oh, let's make a sandwich out of this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I love sandwiches, <laughs> but I don't love all sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the barter town bits. And then you get to the center of the sandwich and you're like, oh, okay, it's this. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then before you know it, we're back into Barter Town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, if you, I mean, if they really fleshed out this whole story about the kids, it does tie in. I'm sure it ties in in their heads, but they just, you know, left out so many things like, you know, the the leavings, uh, you know, even the date that maybe, maybe it should have been there. Maybe it would, you know, it would clear some things up. Mm -hmm. The way those kids portray the entire world, you know, that they're just enclosed in this little thing and they don't know what, what's out there. Those things are just, I think they're really missing from this movie. And I think if we really understand, I mean, if we really saw it, saw it, then, then yeah, I think it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be such a part of a movie that everybody doesn't like. You know what I mean? Now, Julia, with how much you've been reading the book, do you have a greater appreciation for Thunderdome because of what you've read in the book? Yes. The screenplay and the book, they do add a lot of depth to certain specific parts. The part with the kids about the tell and the four leavings that are left out of the movie. The movie only has one leaving. The book has four. And culminating with Savannah alone being that fourth leaving, that's what she was doing out there. I think that adds a lot of depth to the story and to their history. It also adds a lot of depth, I think, to Auntie's character. Mm. So those two areas specifically so far yeah i really wish that they had put more details about the four leavings yeah this movie is only 107 minutes long they could have snuck in two or three more minutes just to hash out some specifics and add a little bit more depth without over bloating it yeah i think they could have yeah, yeah. 107 minutes is a good runtime for a movie like this yeah i think 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and, and with the scenes that are missing, like from the movie, like from, uh, you know, the scene in the hut, I mean, you know, when Max is sleeping, that's also a very, very important scene that's missing. I don't know if you heard about that, uh, the, the nightmare that Max has. I don't I, think we've heard about that. I one. don't think so. That's one of the scenes that it's, I don't think it's actually in the script, but it was supposed to be filmed. Uh, Max, when he was sleeping in the, um, in the hut or whatever it was, this thing, you know, up top, he was supposed to have a nightmare about his wife and his child. Basically, I think it was supposed to be consisting of, uh, you know, flashbacks from, from the previous movies. And that's why it was cut out. And when he wakes up, he goes like, <gasps> you know, he, he, he goes like this, you know, and uh, kind of like, you know, uh, Tom Hardy, you know, when he wakes up in the car, mm -hmm. except the part of the dream is missing. So um, this is, I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of things like this missing. Like, you know, even in the beginning of the script, when you read, like, you know, Max just stumbles upon a, a sign that says hope. Like, this is one of the things that just carries over, like, from, from Beyond Thunderdome to Fury Road. You know, hope is is is, is, a, is a word mentioned by Nux, um, you know, and, and it, it seems to be a pivotal thing. Uh, and, you know, it's... it's um, and this scene is very, very important. I'm sorry, I'm really rambling. No, go for <laughs> no, it. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, th th this, 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 this scene is very important because it actually shows the descent of 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 Max's of you know Max's descent into 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 insanity, which culminated in Fury Road. And it's just something that's missing. Like it's 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 not there in, in, in Beyond Thunderdome. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, they could have just you know removed it because they didn't want Thunderdome to be a heavy movie. Mm -hmm. because it was supposed to be this sort of like an inspirational kind of a movie, like very, um, you know, light in that sense. Yeah. Partially maybe because, you know, the Byron and all that. But um, yeah, there was some, like, you know, there, there was a lot of things in this movie that explain why Max uh, is the way he is in Fury Road and what his descent into insanity looked like. Like he, there was a scene like in, when Max is going through the desert, like with his monkey. I mean, it's in the script, right? And and he's got he has those hallucinations which are almost identical to the ones that he has in his dream in Fury Road. So you know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's all there, you know, a whole lot of things. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of stuff that would have been great to include, but also would have pushed it out of the PG thirteen rating. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially using recycled footage from previous movies, from mm -hmm. you know, maybe of more violent or horrific imagery. Honestly, Jesse's death is very horrific. Yeah, it is. It's not graphic yeah but it is horrific yeah it's exactly why it's so horrific because we don't see it i'm willing to bet it was probably warner brothers um getting their fingers into um, it i just wanting to keep things a little lighter yeah saying you know what we can make more money if mad max beyond thunderdome releases as a pg-13 movie yeah so let's you know keep it light george that type of thing we cut to the very last shot of this minute and it's savannah standing in front of the children and she does this little like hand wave where she closes her fingers and it silences all the children all at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always nice when a minute ends on a natural stop in the movie. Yes. Oh, such a great way to end a week. Yes. With just this little motion, they're doing that rhythmic utterance at the end of that whole wait, one of us will come thing. And then she silences everybody. And it's the perfect ending point for this week as we wait to transition into just a there's just a little bit more of the tell to do but we're gonna save that for monday in the meantime shem do you have any places that you want to point people towards on the internet where they can find more of your stuff yeah absolutely if you want to see some more stuff from me uh, regarding mad max in general all the all the movies go on youtube uh look up mad max bible youtube channel 
you're gonna find four videos for now, but they're <clears throat> but they're pretty substantial. I like to think. Um, you can also go on uh, MadMaxForums.com uh, where I'm a moderator and I also run the uh, uh, MadMax Wikipedia. So uh, we can you know you can go and find me there. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. <laughs> As for us, let's see. We've got coming up on Monday, Savannah is going to declare in front of all the waiting ones that Max is Captain Walker. Return to them. His portrait is going to be revealed, but Max is going to reject this statement and insist that he is not who they think he is. But in the meantime, before we come back on Monday, we've always got our weekend show, Anarchy Road, where we're going through Hook five minutes at a time. We're in week 19 for Hook, which means that we get to see Jack finally hit a home run and break that unlucky streak he's had since the beginning of the movie. Unfortunately, Peter is going to have to witness his son gallivanting around with another man who seems to be a better father than Peter ever could, which is going to make him a bit depressed. But he's going to fuel that depression into a fervor to try and eventually fly. He's going to get smacked in the head, which is going to cause some crazy hallucinations. And then his shadow is going to help him find Wendy's old grotto. It's a very eventful five minutes. So be sure to check out our Patreon. Donate at the $3 level. You get full access to the entirety of Anarchy Road. Hang out with us there and, you know, throw us a few bucks to help us keep this whole venture afloat. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 57 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time oh!